of Realtors Realcast. I'm your host, Maura Neal. March is Women's History Month, and we've had two fantastic episodes this month, during which I had the immense pleasure and honor of interviewing Dorcas Helfand Browning, NAR's first female president, and three inspiring past presidents of the Georgia Realtors, Barbara Kennan, Jan Baker, and Robin Lance. I thought it would be appropriate not just to spotlight some inspiring women, but also to take a look at the role of women in real estate, both historically and today. And so I took the opportunity to sit down with one woman whom I count a personal friend and indeed an inspiration, Paula Montofer. Paula is past president of the Arizona Realtors and immediate past NAR RVP for Region 11, a position she served in 2019. In researching this episode, I found some fantastic tidbits on the National Association of Realtors website. If you've never taken a look and taken advantage of the unbelievable amount of information available at the NAR Library and Archives, I urge you to check it out. I'm going to post a link in our show notes where you can also find out a little bit more about our special guest, Paula. While it would be quite impossible to give a comprehensive picture of the role women have played in real estate since its inception in the late 1700s, there's certainly an entire podcast just to be made out of that content. I wanted to make sure that we took advantage of one final opportunity this month to highlight the role of women in real estate from a historical perspective, look at some of the challenges that we still face today, and take the time to sit down with one more woman who truly inspires me. Welcome to the podcast, Paula. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here and excited for the topic too. I'm super excited for the topic. And I thought that you were a very obvious choice to join me. It's going to air on the very last day of Women's History Month. and our two previous Women's History Month episodes, I had the immense pleasure and honor of interviewing Dorcas Helfant Browning, first female president of NAR, and of course, my super, fu- my super fun brunch chat with three inspiring female past presidents of GAR, Barbara Kennan, Jan Baker, and Robin Lance. And when I was thinking, who would be a great choice to just come on and sort of talk about women in real estate in general? My good friend Paula is the one I thought of first. I don't know what to do with all that, but I am honored to be mentioned with the likes of those ladies. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I also thought, because you and I have had some offline conversations throughout our friendship about uh, not just women in the real estate space and in the space of real estate speakers and instructors, but also just um, historically kind of some ideas of feminism, female friendships, the roles that women play in business. So I thought this would be a really interesting way to end up uh, to close out Women's History Month in general. I love it. I love celebration and I love real talk. Let's go. Plus, you are my history buff friend. So that is dangerous for you, but all right. (laughs) So, you know, the great, one of the great resources that the National Association of Realtors gives us. And I know you're very familiar with it, but I'm hoping that somebody who listens today will discover the NAR Library and Archives. And there's going to be a link to that in our show notes. But when I went into the Library and Archives and I searched for the role of women in real estate, there was some pretty pretty interesting stuff that goes back almost, almost to the inception of the 13 colonies, which I thought was a pretty fascinating piece of information. You know, I love all of that. That's just juicy and delicious. So what did you find that went back that far? So one of the things that I found, there's a great article, and I'm going to link to it, of course, uh, called Women in Real Estate. And historically, women have been involved in real estate almost since the beginning of real estate as a thing, the buying and selling of property in this country, which obviously happened very differently than it did Um, across the pond. But almost since real estate was historically marked, I guess, in in our national archives uh, in 1794, and its establishment as a legitimate business in the 1840s, women were involved in a variety of roles. So 
back then where, I mean, cause women, you know, women weren't voting then, women weren't had holding, you know, a lot of employment back then, but they were being employed in some roles in the real estate industry? They were. So in the earliest days, as you can imagine, women filled office and clerical roles. I'm guessing for their fathers or brothers or husbands, but by the 1880s, women were moving into the role of real estate agent. And even though it was at a much slower rate, even as brokers. So even before we earned the vote, we were involved in a very active way in the real estate industry, which I found to be pretty fascinating. No, I think that's so interesting. And also, you know, um, when I first got my real estate license, I did not feel like I had learned enough in pre-licensing to actually help people with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I took a clerical role in a real estate office. I took a role as an office manager to get in and just to learn something to get started. Thankfully, it didn't take me a hundred years like it took these ladies, but you know, <laughs> but it's still just a, be a beginning sometimes looks like you start at the beginning, you know? Absolutely. And I can completely relate to that. I started as an unlicensed assistant and I was one of those people, I'm a second generation realtor. My father was a realtor in the eighties, even though he then moved into the appraisal and the lending side of things. But I started as an unlicensed assistant and swore I would never get my license. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, that for me, and it sounds like for you as well, really was the place that I learned the ins and outs of the business instead, not that there's anything wrong with getting your license and jumping right in, but by the time I did jump in feet first into the deep end um, and decided that having my license really was where I needed and wanted to be, I had a grasp on things that they don't teach you in pre-license or even really in post-license in a lot of cases. That's so rad. Yeah, no, I, um, I had humility, which was a good asset to have at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and it, it also, you know, there was a lot of humility for me knowing that there was a lot I didn't know. And in some cases, a lot that I thought I didn't want to know or responsibility that I didn't want to have. Uh, seeing the sheer number of hours that um, the agent that I worked for, who was as much as I hate the phrase, she truly was in my mind, a top producer. Yeah. She was a very high producing agent. Obviously she needed someone to be doing the paperwork and the admin, but what better way to learn about contracts? And it seems to me when we read the, the great uh, detail on the NAR archive site, that women who were starting out in office and clerical roles were having those same kind of realizations that I did, which is there's a, there's a better, bigger and better role for me and it involves doing more than filing the paperwork. And to know that a hundred years later, or less than a hundred years after it became a legitimate business, women were moving into the roles of agents and brokers. And then when we look at the, the current national numbers, uh, women, women brokers and agents really are the majority and, and dominate, at least in the residential side. Commercial women have a little bit lesser of a role, but that's not to say that they the the ones that are doing commercial aren't completely killing it right they just haven't taken over the majority yet in that commercial space right that is interesting yeah it's so interesting looking at the numbers and then looking at is are those numbers reflected in leadership and and truly we have many more male leaders than we have female leaders what do you think causes that discrepancy and i know we could do like five hours just on this topic. I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of NAR leaders asking me like, why do you think women drop off? And honestly, there's studies on this in every industry, but what are your, what do you think, Maura? Well, it was, it was interesting that the two interviews that I did uh, for Women's History Month that have aired earlier, obviously the first female president of NAR and then three of our past female GAR presidents, GAR's first female president was actually six years before NAR had a female president. And I know Arizona, your state, Arizona was even before that by more than a decade, I believe, uh, before Georgia. And I think if we, if we took the time to sit down and look at the numbers for all of the states, my guess would be that, first of all, the states, the majority of states were seeing a female president before the national level and that's just because i think the line is longer if you if we want to use those terms that there's a much longer line 
to get into that single spot at the national level versus that single spot in now 50 states. Um, and I say now 50 because obviously there weren't 50 at the time that NAR was founded. Uh, but I think that I think that we have to go back to those, unfortunately, to gender roles and looking at women are more likely to stay home, or at least were for the majority of the time that NAR has existed, more likely to stay home with children, more likely to have traditional gender roles around the house that might keep them from moving into those national positions. I mean, what are you, what's your take on it? Well, Paula? you know, that's interesting because th those two points are the two of the points that come up in almost all the national studies that I've read about it. Um, you know, it, it seems, it seems like in whatever industry you're looking at that women are on this, on the same path and they are excelling at the same rate. And then for different reasons, sometimes their choice, sometimes they're not sometimes not their choice for different reasons, they get taken off that path. Some of the reasons where it is their choice are the ones that you mentioned, like um, childcare. And they want to be, they still want to be able to work, but they also want to be able to take care of their kids. And that is a lot of uh, anxiety and guilt. And it's a, it's a struggle that I know a lot of people go through. Um, and so that creates a big portion of it right then and there. Um, and then, you know, there are still a lot of stereotypes against women. And while we're talking about it, I, you, know, you, know, you know me, you know I'm gonna always say, there's also a lot of stereotypes against men. Sure. And I think that um, whatever we're doing, the best thing we can do is look at the individual that's in front of us, rather than the generality that we've come into the room with. Right, and when we, I wanna spend a little more time on the, the working mothers and childcare piece of it because while I don't have children, you have a beautiful daughter who I just adore. But when we think about the, the childcare piece, so many of our friends in the business do have families, have children. And the thing that gets, I guess, eliminated first is the volunteer role because you do have to worry about your children, take care of your children, provide for your children, whether that's staying home with them by choice or putting them into childcare, either you know, by choice or not by choice. Right. But you still feel, like you said, this guilt and responsibility and all of those emotions and all of those things that come with having, a child, having children or just having a spouse, having yeah. family responsibilities in general, whether you have children or not. And the piece that seems to get the ax first it's not the dollar productive pieces, it's the volunteerism piece. And I hear that a lot when I talk to people at every level, local, state, and national. It, but it also comes down to the culture of where they're volunteering. So I'm gonna give you two drastically different examples. So the first is, I was so thrilled, I was chosen and selected to be chair of uh, professional business development for Arizona which is a chair of one of the four major committees that we have. I am now going to be leading um, those meetings and sitting at the executive committee table for our state. I could not have been more thrilled. Um, and I also got pregnant at the same time. Yeah. So it comes around for our strategic planning meeting and I am still nursing. I, I can't go and leave my daughter for two days. And even if I go, I can't not be with her for right. a couple of hours a day. I, I have to have her with me. And Holly Mabry said, we want you there. Can you come? Can you bring Sam? That'll work just fine. Mm -hmm. When I was chairing that committee at the state level, I was like, Barb Freestone, I don't know how I'm going to be able to work this meeting. I have Sam. And she said, oh, she's at the age where they just crawl around. Bring her down with, them to, with you to the meeting. We can lay out a blanket behind your chair and she can crawl around while you lead the meeting. Barb Freestone is the vice president for professional development for Arizona Realtors. Holly Mayberry was the incoming president at that time. Those two ladies made a space, made accommodations because they still wanted me at that table. Had those two women not done that at that time, I don't know that I would have been the past RVP. I don't know that I would have ever been president of Arizona because there wasn't a space for me and Sam there. Now, complete dichotomy to those two stories, a different association. I was attending their membership meeting. This is not even like, I'm not leading it. I'm just one of 200 people there and I would bring Sam to it. 
and someone complained mm. and asked that I stop bringing my daughter to it. And so I have not been back to a membership meeting. There's a yeah. big difference between where you make people feel welcome mm -hmm. and give them a space. And then I feel like, I hope, I gave a lot back to the Arizona Realtors. I continued on in my leadership. I continued on in my volunteerism um, because they gave to me. And I think that there's, there's a big lesson there for wherever anybody is looking for this, whether you're in the role of parent or you're in the role of someone else that's in the room that can make that person feel like the space has a space for them too. Yeah. There's a lot of dads that have to take their kids with them too. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's just a female issue. No. I think that we need to leave the space open for, especially now for it to be considered for dads as well. Stay at home dads, dads that are the, the handling the majority of the parental roles but historically, of course, what we're talking about is women. Oh, absolutely. And I think too, we also need to talk about from a, from a female role and a female perspective on issues, the issues of someone like me who doesn't have children and the assumptions that are made on the other side of that coin that 100%. surely you're available for, for example, a, a meeting at seven o'clock at night or a, a Zoom call, for example, um, right now in the midst of this uh, pandemic that we're in, um, surely you're available to have a meeting with us at 7 p.m. because you don't have kids. And what are you going to, what are you doing during that time? It's not bath time or you're not putting dinner on the table for your kids. Um, but that comes up too, I think, across the board when we look at um, making assumptions about someone who is able to do things or is not able to do things based on a gender role that has been assigned to them or a role family or not family that's been assigned to them. And, and all of this is just stuff that we're casting on to people. Like none of it has to do with the person themselves. Like this is all stuff that we've come into the room with. Right. We, we, we maybe didn't even leave a space for who that person is in that room at this point. Right. Um, and, and I'd love to give another example just from a, for a leader, from a leadership perspective, because you did ask the question, why, why do I feel that um, women take or receive or are offered fewer leadership roles. And I remember I was sitting in a nominating committee interview for an association and I won't name them. Uh, and I had filled out uh, as, as every candidate did, I had filled out my questionnaire and submitted my resume. And uh, the question came up to me, well, we see how busy you are are you sure that you're going to have the time to fulfill this role? Because we see, we're looking at your resume and your commitments and we see how busy you are. And I was, that may be one of my proudest moments because I actually, I'm one of those people who generally about an hour or two or the next day later, I think of what I should have said. <laughs> and I actually had the wherewithal in the moment to say, instead of answering that question, I'd like to ask you a question back if I was a man, would you be asking me the same question? Because I don't, I don't recall ever hearing uh, a male in a similar position being asked the question, We're, we see how busy you are, are you going to be able to handle this role as well as running your business and, and the other commitments that you've had? And while I understand that when you are considering someone for a leadership position, that is something that you should take into consideration as, a deciding member of that committee or that credentialing team or whatever their role is. But I think we also have to give some amount of credit and make some assumptions that the person who is applying for the position is mature enough and in, in charge of their own faculties enough to say, I wouldn't be applying for this if I didn't feel I had the time. Now, not everyone comes from that place. But I think that that's something that we, we need to be giving that assumption to our potential leaders, or there needs to be another reason that you don't think that they're right for that role. hundred percent. I, I have had to answer um, for my ambition, for my audacity to believe in myself many, many times over. And it wasn't until, honestly, about five months ago that I unpacked it and saw it for what it was, that that's what it was. They, it wasn't, they weren't upset that I was applying for things. They were upset that 
I don't think it was my ambition. I thought it was my ambition before. I think it's really more the, uh, my audacity. And audacity is, you know, daring greatly. And it can be either seen as like a foolish dare or it can be seen, it can be seen positively. The two definitions are wildly opposed. But I really think that that's what it was. It was that I was audacious enough to believe um, that I could be RVP, which is where I got a lot of, a lot of pushback. There were rumors going around about me that I had slept with people to get the Arizona nomination. Mm. I don't even know what that would look like, Maura. I don't know how many people that would be. We've got 120 people on our board. I don't, I, but it was literally heat from my feet to the top of my head when a friend shared that with me. When I checked with another friend, if they had heard it, they said, oh yeah, I had heard it too. I said, what do you say? When people tell you that I slept my way to get the Arizona nomination. And this woman who I adore said, well, I just said to them, with all these choir boys around, who would Paula have to play with anyway? And that shut them up. Right. Um, I had to answer for my audaciousness. I had people spreading horrible, disgusting rumors about me. Um, And I ran again anyway. The second time I ran unopposed. that was the time where the blockades did present themselves and I decided to keep going anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't always happen that way for everybody. And I think that's important for people to understand that these things still happen today. Um, while I served as president of my state association, one of my best friends, Patrick Lewis, who Mara knows very well, um, was coming up behind me as a state association president. We're very good friends, so we pal around together often at these events. Um, I would get done speaking about something, a project we were working on, some new event, something, some endeavor, some idea that I had something to share. And people would come up to us afterwards and say hello to me and then try to talk to Patrick about what I had just talked about without fail. And Patrick, because he knows me and he's, he's scared, <laughs> he would do slowly, he's scared for what's going to happen next. He would just slowly, slowly start to just one step, two steps, just stand behind until he was totally standing behind me. And that they would have to say something through me to get to him. And eventually he'd just be like, well, Paula just talked about that. You should talk to Paula about that. And that was, that was such a common, common occurrence. And the other one that happened often is people would come up and people ask this in all kinds of ways. And I just want to put this out there. They ask this, it runs the gamut. They ask it from coming from a place from their heart of wanting to understand so that they can try to emulate and coming from a place of severe judgment and wanting to let me know about it. And the question is, how do you do all of this with your daughter? Mm-hmm. And they also asked me that right next to Patrick, who has two young sons <laughs> under <laughs> the age of 10 that he leaves when he's sacrificing his time to volunteer. So both from the perspective of um, not, not appreciating what our male counterparts are sacrificing, right. and also from the perspective of, um, you know, a lot, some of those conversations end with, well, I just couldn't do that with right. my daughter. And I, I understand that everyone needs to do what is right with them. Um, but that's certainly not, that's coming from a place of judgment rather than a place of uh, trying to understand someone else. Sure. And I'll say once again, to give the, the counterpoint to that, it is not only not appreciating the fathers who are leaving home, but when I get the question of how do you do all that? generally the next question is, well, do you have kids? And I say, no. And they say, oh, well, that's how you do it. Oh, that's and how. That's, and that's not, <laughs> again, it, and, I, and I agree with you. It is it's very, sometimes very much coming from a place of trying to understand. And I know that being you can involved- tell though, can't you, where it's coming from when the people are saying it to you? Sure. You can tell. Of course. But yeah. I think that there are people who, who legitimately are- and I, I hesitate to use the word impressed because I don't, I don't think most of us who volunteer do it in order to impress others. We do it out of a sense of duty to the industry or because we have a true passion or a true, not or, and or because we have a true passion or a true interest in, in understanding the, all of the facets that go into what make it possible for us to run this incredible type of business that we do. Um, and I do think that there are people who are, for lack of a better word, impressed. But I also think that sometimes they really are trying to understand. Oh, yeah. But the assumption that you shouldn't be leaving home as often because you have a child or that's why I can leave home 
as often as I do because I don't. It it just it's it's just fascinating to me because you and I don't feel that one really has anything to do with the other. No, they really don't. And again, this really comes back to none of that is taking into who you and I actually are. And all that you do in your life, even right. though you don't have kids, it's amazing. I mean, it's just crazy to me. Like, of course you still have things that you want to do. You still have family, even if you don't have children, you know, it just, it's very interesting to me. I agree. But I think what it comes down to there again, is just people leaning on generalities instead of taking the time to get to know the individual in front of them, you know? Sure. Well, I want to take it back for a minute to the his, historical perspective of real yeah. estate and the National Association, because again, there's just so much fascinating information on the NAR library and archive site. Um, so most of us know that when NAR was founded in 1908, the membership was 100% male. I don't think that's surprising to anyone. Um, I don't th I'm sorry? I don't think it is either, no. Yeah, no. And similarly, as you can imagine then, state realtor association memberships were all male. Now, NAR's original purpose, uh, if anyone's ever gone and looked at some of those documents, NAR's original purpose was written, uh, quote, to unite the real estate men of America. However, what I think most people don't know, or we make assumptions about and we assume incorrectly, is that NAR was not restricted to just men. And on a national level, there actually has never been specific gender or racial requirements for membership. So it wasn't on the national level. Now, when, if we were to have a long conversation about fair housing, and I know you teach fair housing, and um, NAR has in recent years um, made some apologies for upholding um, some pretty ugly uh, gender limitations for home ownership and, and civil rights. But if we, if, we, if we don't enter into that discussion right now, because I think that's a complicated one and a very long one for another uh, episode, if on a national level, there were not gender or racial requirements for membership, it was the local boards who decided who was qualified and who wasn't. So while it doesn't excuse the National Association for not urging inclusion, they never actually had those, those rules or those restrictions in place. So we really- So important. I think this is so important. And I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because there wasn't anything in writing. There wasn't anything from the National Association. There probably wasn't even anything in writing at the local associations that would have kept women out. But still, they were keeping women out. And doesn't that speak exactly to that culture piece <laughs> That Absolutely. I was just talking about that I'm that is still prevalent today. And by the way, the person that complained about me bringing my daughter to a membership meeting was a woman. And I just I just feel like that's important because it's too easy in these discussions to get into an us versus them. Sure. And I love how you and I are having this discussion about if there is a them, the them is the people that don't respect the individual. That's right. who the them is. Right? right. It's definitely not men versus women. Or, and it's not, it's not um, one group against another group. Right. It's, it's, but it's so easy for people to put it in those terms, right? It's, it that's, certainly is. That's, that's, that's the default for this conversation. And I'm so glad that we're not having that, you know? Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's an important way to start to look at it too. If, if, you, if we're going to talk about culture, that's the way that you can enact a change in culture is take away the us versus them mentality. Take right. away... Um, that group is right and this group is wrong. It's identifying the positive, the, the ones who bring the positive culture to the organization and highlighting them and, and uplifting them and putting them in the spotlight so that others will follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I think that that's a fascinating place to, a fascinating way to look at this though. Um, there may have been, I, you know, obviously you and I haven't read the charters for every local association who was, who was around back in the early days, but there may certainly have been some who did have some gender and or racial um, restrictions in writing. In writing, yeah. The fact that the National Association didn't, and, and it comes back to that three-way agreement where when you join an association, you join your local association, and by virtue of that, you then are a member of the state and the national, which while we learned that early on in our realtor or, uh, orientations or in our 
um, in other, you know, training that we take, I think we forget that really quickly. We forget that the local association not only sets the tone and the culture, but also is the primary association of membership. Oh, and it's, and isn't that the truth? I mean, it, it really makes such a big difference to people. Um, and that's why we're seeing where people can choose which association they're going to, that they're making choices that are the best for them. So really interesting how it all, from a historical perspective, <laughs> how it all has evolved. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I find really interesting, um, again, uh, thank you to the NAR Library and Archives. When I was reading through, and we're only touching, I just want to make the point that we're barely skimming the surface here. There are so many resources and so many um, so much other information that you can get if you go to that website. But um, NAR started in 1908. Um, there were some local associations that started even earlier than that. However, as early as the 1920s, local realtor boards began establishing special women's divisions that were catering to female agents and brokers. So as early as the 1920s, somebody somewhere said, well, there has to be a place for women. So early examples include, um, shout out to Portland, Oregon. They, their real estate board, uh, as much as I hate this name, Paula. They I do too, I'm sorry. The Realtyettes. I mean, I um, love the Rockettes, so you'd think I would love the Realtyettes, <laughs> but yet I don't. But I love, yeah. that, I love that they did what they did, and I love it in the 1920s, because again, just the historical, it's history dork right here, the Roaring Twenties was really when you know, women gained suffrage, when women started cutting their hair and doing, dancing a little dangerously, and really started cutting out. So it's interesting to me, from a historical perspective, that, that the Realtyettes, um, which let's just give them historical credit for the time instead of looking them with the critical eye from today, Real Tietz back in the 20s was perfectly named for the 20s. It's adorable. I just wish it wasn't. But for the what? 1920s, it's, Absolutely. it's so of that era. Um, but what they did in the 1920s, um, they did and they changed things for women going forward. And that's Absolutely. really, really amazing. And, and the timing couldn't have been better, right? With suffrage and um, the California Association of Realtors also, they started a women's division, which eventually became the model for Women's Council. Uh, and then Women's Council officially formed in 1938. So within a span of, you know, a, a decade or two, a very loud voice was, was heard. And um, the, even though the, the very first NAR member profile from 1949 Oh had 98% uh, of the members were men, but we also have to keep in mind back then membership was only open to brokers. It wasn't open to sales agents. So when uh, in 1973, when they opened up membership to sales agents, instead of just to brokers, that those membership numbers changed dramatically because we were starting to count everyone in the business rather than just the brokers. In 1973, it was 17% women because we were counting sales agents and brokers. And by 1975, they were up to a third of the membership. And three years later, in 1978, women surpassed men as the percentage of total membership. So we've been the majority members in the National Association since 1978. I think that's so interesting too. I love that, that the, the boom of women came after they changed the requirement from being a broker to an agent. And again, I think this speaks to what we're discussing here. Um, it's, it wasn't the, I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna lead a whole group of people. It was, I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna create a business for myself, which felt more comfortable and entry level for a lot of people and where they could, with humility, come into an industry, right? I don't fault anybody for going for the broker and I don't fault anybody for coming in with humility, but it opened up that other space and then look at the flood that happened after those gates were opened with that. Um, right. I, find that I find that really interesting. And um, it was a, a five-year period. So just to repeat those numbers in case, you know, someone is listening to this while they're driving or it really didn't make the impact. In 1973, we had 118,000 members, 17% of which were women. And this is when we opened up membership to sales agents and brokers. So 1975, 435,500 members women were a third. And then 1978, just five years after that membership was opened up, 
we surpassed men as a percentage of total membership. And that is huge, huge, That's huge. That's huge. And it's an influx in such a short amount of time. And here's the thing. I think that you and I probably know a lot of women that got involved at that time. Absolutely. And are still involved, you know, sure. Sure. and, uh, it's, I think I, I just find all of this very interesting, <laughs> like numbers and dates and data. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> now it would be another 18 years before women represented the majority of broker licensees. But I think when we're looking at total membership, because there are no leadership requirements that you be a broker versus a sales agent. And, you know, for example, I'll say, I don't have my broker license and mm -hmm. Part of that reason, it's not because I'm not interested in the education piece or, or that I'm not interested in that for my resume. I just, I personally don't have the ambition to be a broker. So for me, there are other forms of education that make more sense for me. Um, and the fact that leadership roles don't have a requirement that you be a broker. I love that women represent the majority of broker licensees but it, it doesn't seem as much of a coup to me as the total membership numbers and, and the way that they grew in just that five-year span. Now, I think, I think the, the, the level of leadership that we would want to see for these numbers would be in, in being the designated broker more than the broker licensee, right? Like that's, and we sure. will see that. I'm sure that we will see that if we haven't already started to. Um, but I, like you, have no desire to be a broker. Um, because I need to sleep at night and I don't want to worry about what other people are doing. <laughs> but, um, but I, so I, I think that that's, it's, a, it, these are all really interesting marks because we can read all kinds of stuff into this. And then again, when you play it against history, it becomes even more interesting. You know, during the seventies was the women's lib movement. And so for them at that time, um, you know, we're talking about, this is when um, the ERA was really, really being pushed. Not that um, there aren't still people trying to push the Equal Rights Amendment forward, which for whatever it's worth, literally just says that men are equal to women um, and it's still yet to be passed. Um, but this is all during, during that era of the 70s. So it's just interesting for me to look at how, um, what has played out with history is absolutely reflected with our membership. But what's, what I think is most interesting is based on these numbers is that our industry and our membership wasn't just like, oh, it's a new dawn, it's a new day. They're like, I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna run this. And they just came in in droves. Women were like, this is my space. I'm gonna go enter it. I think I'd be interested to see how much more than any other industry we had this upsurge in women entering it because it seems to me like we would be an outlier. Right. Right. I agree. I agree. So, so I want to go back to, because I don't want to, I don't want anyone to be able to listen to this and say, gosh, you guys, it was, it, there was a lot of negativity there when you were talking about gender roles and, and, and highlighting traditional gender roles. I want to sort of end this on a super positive note, because obviously I think these numbers are very positive. Um, yeah. So Let's go back to that conversation that we had um, when we were talking about our own personal examples and, and maybe some, some things that were assumed about what we can and can't do or our audacity. When we're looking at upcoming leaders, because in the, the two interviews that I did for Women's History Month with those amazing, inspiring past presidents, um, one of the questions I asked them is what kept them coming back? Because they all faced challenges, as you can 100%. imagine. Um, what keeps them coming back year after year, even once their presidential year and their immediate past president year is, is done? Um, so what advice do you think we should be giving when we're talking about keeping women who maybe have had some struggles already, keeping them coming back and keeping them audacious, wanting to keep that fire burning in their belly, but also newer leaders, and I, I hesitate to say young, even though YPN and Women's Council are great at nurturing quote unquote young leaders, but I think we, we would do a better job talking about young in the business or, or young in leadership. So a newer realtor or a veteran realtor who's just dipping their toes into the leadership pool who may face some really similar challenges to what you and I talked about, but also 
maybe some challenges that you and I haven't even touched on because we're only speaking from our own personal stories. How do we, how do we encourage them to not let it be the thing that discourages them and makes them back away from their leadership journey? I really think that what has um, lifted me and kept me going is all the different tribes that I have. And so I think it's really important for people to be networking and meeting with people. When you talk to somebody who's across the state, across the entire country and in a local association and they're dealing with the exact same issue that's an actual issue or the exact same BS issue that you are dealing with, it normalizes your experience yes. and helps you to continue. I think um, I will say that I faced probably more discrimination for how, and you guys can't see me, but I'm using air quotes, how young, because I'm not really that young, but how young I was um, in being a leader. So that, that's a real thing in our industry as well. Um, Again, a question or an assumption that isn't made generally about men. A young man comes up in leadership and people are, it's impressive. Oh, he's so young and look at his leadership skills. And, but it's, it's yeah. taken very differently for a young, and I'm using air quotes as well, a young female. Um, right. and, and very different assumptions are made and very different uh, discriminatory practices go into play based on young when it's assigned to one gender or the other. Yeah, I had to answer, answer many times for why I wanted to move so quote unquote fast. And that's why I love that you sent me that Dorcas was president of NAR when she was 45 years old, which is in our industry, just a youngster, right? right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. And I think, I think you make a really important um, point about tribes because uh, I know it just went live yesterday and I know you probably haven't had time to listen to it, but you... I think Paula would really enjoy my chat with uh, Barbara, Jan, and Robin, um, three past GAR presidents. Unfortunately, uh, our first female president who was part of their tribe, we lost her in the fall. She passed away in the fall of 2019, but we spent a lot of time talking about her and we spent a lot of time talking about female friendships and the fact that a lot of and again, not making assumptions, but a lot of females in my world, a lot of people in my tribe have had struggles over the years. If you think about from middle school, high school on up, female friendships are very complex, but when you find the ones that, that really gel in your world, they're complex, but they're rewarding. And so finding that tribe, and for women, it doesn't have to be other women, although it certainly helps. Um, but just finding that group of people that you can share with and that you can vent to. I know you and I are in a pretty fun little group now that is <laughs> resultant of the pandemic, but there's seven of us and we're women and we're from different places. And some of us knew each other previously and some of us didn't, but what a, what a way of coping with just some of the normal stuff in our world, but some of this really abnormal stuff that's happening right now, leadership, real estate, or just general life and how valuable that has become in a very short span of what, a week and a half? Yeah, a week and a half is so right. What, what I think is interesting for people that are just starting to get involved, that means you're starting out with your local, you're starting out with a small committee. And what I want you to know is that sometimes those spaces can be very tribal. So make sure you get yourself out into a bigger space and a bigger area. Get to a state event too. Get to a national convention. Get yourself up on a bigger hill so you can see the bigger picture of all that you have just gotten yourself involved with. And find those people that you can connect with and keep looking for them until you do because trust me, we have so many incredible leaders that are all about inclusion all across the country. So if that's not who you're talking to, start talking to somebody else. And I think that, you know, Facebook is a great place to start for that. If you can get into some, like the national YPN group, for example, or your state YPN group, or if you're a member of women's council, but also don't be afraid to lurk for a little bit and, and get to know the people before you, before you um, jump into one of those friend groups, get to know them, get to know their personalities and, um, and who you're going to gel well with, right? Uh, and also look for mentors. I think- Oh, I was I just going to say that, 100%. I tell, 
Yep. I tell a story at the beginning of my um, episode with Barbara, Jan, and Robin about how I got to know them um, when we were stranded in O'Hare Airport in Chicago after a meeting once. And they went from being this intimidating group of past presidents that I knew were just like real life besties, um, but, but kind of set up on a pedestal by me. Um, to being this group of women that, you know, invited me into the fold and, and demanded that I come over and sit with them and have a glass of wine. It's kind of the opposite of Mean Girls, right? Instead of, yes. you can't sit with us, it was, you need to come over here and sit with us. And how do you say no to that? Well, and I think, I think that you're hitting on such an important point and probably one of the best resources that our National Association has. And that is the people that are involved in leadership are some of the most gratuitously generous and inclusive people that you could ever hope to meet in your entire life. And I know that when you see maybe a group of us joking and laughing and just getting on so well, it might look, the optics might look like a click, but if you walk up, I will give you my seat and you can join us. Right, yeah. And I think that's important to remember too, because when, when you do get to uh, going to your state conventions, for example, or to the national convention, we've all been there. We've all been, in the position of being a little unsure, a little, um, what's the word? A, a little bit of a lack of confidence. Yeah. It seems very cliquish, as you said, because the leadership does tend to be literally running from meeting to meeting to meeting and their schedules are insane. And we want our leadership to be good friends, by the way. That's a tremendous asset but I do just also understand what the optics can look like. Sometimes. Absolutely. Yes. You want them to be great, a great team that works well yeah. together, but we also know that they're running from meeting to meeting and their schedules are crazy, but they are in, in the majority of cases, never too busy to talk to a member or if they really have to be somewhere right then as Barbara, I believe Barbara Kennan said when she sat down and talked with me, she had to learn that it wasn't professional for her to be late to the next meeting because that's keeping a room full of people waiting. But she would keep her business cards in her pocket and she would immediately pull out a card and say, please give me a call next week or give me your card, I'll give you a call. So the leadership yeah. wants to talk with you. They want to be your mentor. They want to know how they can help you. They want to know that you're interested in um, starting your own leadership journey or continuing it. So the best I thing- I love all of what you just said, that leadership wants you to talk to them. They want you to do, I love, I love everything that you just said. I want, you, I want everybody to rewind that part and play it again, <laughs> because it's so true. These are people that, that they're going there because they want to give. I mean, help them out, people. Right, right. So what would be your, um, if you had one final thought, before I ask you the um, official podcast question that we ask every guest. But if you had one final thought, especially not just for women, I think, but although, you know, we are celebrating Women's History Month for this. So um, thinking about female upcoming leadership, if you had one final thought for them, if they're feeling a, a crisis of confidence or they're just starting that journey, what would your one tidbit of advice be? Well, I'm going to steal this and I will send you the video from a very smart commercial broker that I heard speak at MIPAM in Con France. And there's no way to say that and not sound hoity-toity. <laughs> um, but what she said was, um, I feel that for women, they should get out of their own way and just do it and stop worrying about dotting every I and crossing every T and stop waiting until they think it's perfect because your male counterparts are not waiting until they think it's perfect. And for everyone, I would say, male, female, young, old, we need your voices at the table. We need all of your voices at the table. We are stronger when we are together. I could not agree more. That is, that is just, it's the best advice. And it really, it goes for leadership, but it also goes for, I mean, think about it, your real estate business. Don't wait for it to be perfect. If you think you want to start a new project, don't wait for it to be perfect. If you're planning that vacation, that trip of a lifetime, don't wait for it to be perfect. It, it, it echoes in so many facets of life, but it's especially important for women in leadership. And I, I could not love that more. So right before we end, 
I want to ask you the question that I'm asking every guest because obviously this is a real estate podcast. And uh, so I want you to think about your dream home. And if money and work and location and obligations, if, if, there, if none of that was of any consideration and you just had to describe, you can describe what it looks like physically, you can describe it very conceptually, but talk to me about your dream home. Um, it's, I, I know all about it. So I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so prepared for this question. Um, it is up on the mountains overlooking a view of the Pacific Ocean where I have a great bird's eye view of watching the sunset into the ocean every night. I have a gorgeous, beautiful, large deck with um, kind of twiny looking railing. I'll send you a pic, Mara, so you know what I'm talking about. But um, a beautiful, beautiful deck with a swing a porch swing on the back of it and Samer Jammer and I and Mark just wrap up in a big blanket on the chilly nights that it gets cold that close to the equator and mm -hmm. watching the sunset. I love it. That's fantastic. And for anybody who doesn't put the pieces together, Mark is Paula's husband and Sam, Samer Jammer is her gorgeous daughter. Um, so I love that it incorporates not only your physical description of home, but just family being there and the one thing that you want to look at every night, which is your family and the sunset. I just think that's so fantastic. Thanks, friend. This was fun. Well, I, I so definitely fun. agree. This was so much fun. And I want to thank you for your time. Um, and I want to thank you for having such a transparent and authentic, as much as those words are overused these days. I really feel like this was a transparent and authentic conversation about I'm a little worried about all I said, but it's going to be fine. Well, <laughs> just kidding. I'm what just I love kidding. about you, though, kidding. is you're so willing to share. And that's one of the reasons that I thought you would be just the perfect person, because not only are you a history buff and you enjoy talking about things from a historical perspective and moving them into the now, but also you're willing to share and, and help others to learn from positive and negative experiences that you've had. And you never take it to a truly negative place because because since you are a teacher, an instructor, a speaker, you always find a little lesson in it. So I want to thank you for being here and for your time and your authenticity. And thanks for being a part of GA Realcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can find out more about Paula, as well as find the links to everything we talked about in this podcast by going to our show notes at garealcast.com. Please remember to like and subscribe to us. Apparently, it helps others to find us and boosts our ratings. Have a great one.